farmland. Coming up. Ian Kilgallen, Business Development and Innovation Manager at Gas Networks Ireland, is here to outline how slurry and silage can decarbonise our economy. Aaron Ford, the CEO of Arivo, will be here to talk Milk Price 2019, the big climate change challenge, and consolidation opportunities for the dairy sector. ICSA Sheep Chairman John Brooks will voice his concerns over Sheep Ireland as he claims faulty figures are emerging from the system. But first, are farmers ready to build anaerobic digesters on farm to sell natural gas to the national grid? Brefney O'Brien reports from Kildare. This week, we travelled to Billy Costello's biogas plant in Nurney, County Kildare, to see what biogas is all about. We're a farming company and we set up a biogas plant. So we take in the pig slurry, we take in waste food and we take in belly grass and products like that. We mix it all together into a soup, put it into the large digesters, which are just big tanks. It goes to the top of the tank and the gas goes down and runs an engine, which makes electricity and heat. So we use ele the electricity goes to the grid and is sold and the heat is used on the farm to heat the pigs. Last week, Gas Networks Ireland's Green Renewable Agricultural Zero Emissions Gas Project or Graze Gas Project in County Cork was selected as one of seven initiatives to receive investment under the government's Climate Action Fund. Biogas contains methane and CO2 and you put it through a piece of equipment which takes the CO2 out. So now what you're left with is exactly the same as what comes up out of the Corrib gas field or Kinsale. The Graze Gas Project Plan involves the development of a central grid injection facility where renewable gas will enter the national gas grid. The Graze Gas Project in County Cork has the potential to supply renewable gas to over 56,000 homes. This biogas will be created by mixing silage, slurry and other organic materials that will be sourced on Irish farms. In Kuwait, where we have all the oil in Saudi Arabia, when they take oil up out of the ground, it won't replace itself for about a million years. So we can replace our green oil every six weeks. So we have a replenished product that's there growing without even thinking about it. Every other European country has a biomethane industry where they take agricultural products like grass, turn it into biomethane and inject it into the gas grid. And we should be doing the same in Ireland. There's not really economic sense in bringing wood chip from the United States and transporting it to Lanesborough. 35% of the energy goes out as electricity and 65% of it goes as hot water into the River Shannon. If you had a, a large digester in Lanesborough, instead of the um, biomass plant, you could take in thousands of tonnes of silage and the workers who worked in Bordemona let them continue driving tractors, cutting the silage, drawing it in, a farmer benefits because he has a, another income. He, if a farmer is cutting silage for a biogas plant and he's getting 30 euros a ton. So if a fa suckler farmer with 100 acres put half his land over to growing grass for a biogas plant, he'll have an income. We have a grid around the country which is available like our electricity grid to take gas. It stores it. You can put gas in in County Cavan and you can take it out in County Cork. You know, it doesn't make any difference. And the system is there. Let's use the gas grid that has been developed. Billy explains that he believes the government must introduce a renewable energy feed-in tariff or refit tariff to make biogas a more attractive option. I see no future for biogas in Ireland unless the minister decides to give a, a refit subsidy. If we built 60-odd biomethane plants, we wouldn't pay any levy 200 million in 2020. And at the same time, we'd be able to give the equivalent of about 150 million to dry stock farmers and silage growers. You would take only 2 or 3% of the grassland of Ireland and you would solve our problem. Now, Ireland imports 7 billion euros worth of carbon fuel every year. Other countries could be buying our surplus credits. Our gas pipeline joins to all of Europe. So green gas put in in County Kildare today can be taken out in Switzerland tomorrow. We're joined now by Ian Kilgallen, Business Development and Innovation Manager at Gas Networks Ireland. Ian, thanks very much for coming in to us. Ian, so the ultimate aim of the Grays Gas Project is to demonstrate that we can supply renewable heat, renewable gas into the national grid to heat our homes and to fuel our vehicles. And in doing so, we're going to decarbonize um, the economy. 
But I suppose over the years, there have been lots of lots of such ideologies that have tried and failed. Um, why are you so confident that this is the way to go? Yeah, indeed, I suppose there's a lot of advantages. The, the gas network is an existing infrastructure, so there's no new significant investment needed to support this sector. The, the gas network is already there. You have very large customers that are already using gas uh, very efficiently. You have a whole heating sector, a whole domestic heating sector, again, that are using gas very efficiently. So in a scenario where we can inject renewable gas into our grid, it's essentially just a fuel swap. So there's a cost involved in producing it, and that cost is higher than the cost of natural gas out of the ground, if you appreciate. But uh, the cost to the consumer, there's no other existing or additional cost to the consumer, in essence, they're just dealing with a fuel switch. So they wake up the next day, the fuel is now renewable, it's fully decarbonized, and yet they can still achieve all the efficiency savings by running gas, running gas, combined heat and power uh, in, uh, in, in commercial plants and factories, for instance, uh, and obviously gas for uh, heavy goods vehicles. Uh, this, is, uh, this actually represents a commercial opportunity because this is actually going to be a cheaper fuel than diesel even. But we're quite late to the game on this, really. You know, there's a lot of our our um, neighbouring member states that have actually they're kind of light years ahead yeah. um, on the on the biomethane production side. Yes. Uh, why are we kind of late to the game on this? There are only twelve anaerobic digester- digesters in Ireland. Yeah, at the moment, and I suppose there there's an advantage, if anything, by us being late uh, in that. All of our neighbours have learned all the lessons for us. Um, so and it's a very mature technology for us to adapt at this stage. Yes, we're late, I suppose, without a doubt. But in adapting now means we're able to learn all of those lessons, not make the same mistakes. And actually, it's quite clear from our colleagues, especially the French, the French at the moment are rolling out these plants so one every two weeks. Uh, doing it at scale has been demonstrated to, is to be the most cost-effective means of doing it. So rather than doing it piecemeal, bespoke projects one after the other, actually having a common design approach and replicate and continue rolling out, rolling out, you actually achieve an economy of scale much quicker. And actually, it genuinely, in the space of renewable energy, at least, this it will actually be a very competitive alternative in the renewable energy space. And Ian, why did you decide on the site in Mitchellstown, down in Cork, which is, you know, big dairy country? Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, I suppose, for one thing, we have a lot of customers in that area. So the agri-food beverage uh, sectors would be one of our largest client base. They use an awful lot of gas. Uh, they themselves have been approaching us to assist in their decarbonisation. So most of their energy, nearly 90, 95% of their energy in most cases is, is gas. So the option for those guys to be able to switch to a, a, a low carbon or a zero carbon alternative is a massive opportunity for them. But equally, they actually need the assistance from the likes of ourselves to, to help them decarbonize because their products, every kilogram of milk powder, has to compete on the European market where we're relying on an export market. So driving in decarbonization solutions and actually decarbonizing that gas for those clients will actually allow them to be able to compete at a European level much more effectively with a real decarbonized solution. And obviously, the farming sector that are supplying them also has a great challenge to decarbonize as well. So... I suppose you've, you've a perfect storm. You have a lot of farmers with a lot of slurry, for argument's sake, in particular slurry. Um, and that's an opportunity in our mind. Yes, it's, yes, uh, the, the decarbonisation challenge in agriculture is a challenge, but it's also a significant opportunity. And actually doing it in scale in a location like Mitchellstown area uh, is probably an ideal location, to be honest. Do you think, though, you might face some challenges there in terms of the buy-in from dairy farmers because, you know, dairy is there's a huge appetite for it and there i'm sure some dairy farmers would rather see their silage and their their slurry and their organic organic materials going into to milk production yeah no absolutely and and in no circumstances can we actually impinge on the fodder demand and fodder supply so and actually the challenges we've had in mitchellstown have been fascinating so we've, we've quite a good group of farmers there at the moment and what we see, the, the AD facilities need to be located where there is slurry. So slurry is still the primary feedstock. So for instance, uh, we have pig farmers in the Mitchellstown area, so they're an ideal location for an AD facility. Typical dairy farmers, some of them are big enough to have enough slurry themselves, but typically we will need to get a cluster, you know, maybe mini cooperatives together to supply in slurry into the one location. And then in terms of the organic material, so it's essentially it's a co-digestion process, so it's about 40% slurry. Is 60% other organic materials, but those organic materials must be sustainably sourced. 
they can't actually impinge or infringe uh, fodder supply. They must be complementary. So in the Mitchell area in particular, where we've seen um, that organic material is, is more likely to come from the tillage sector. So the tillage guys been able to grow, say, a four-year rotation crop of uh, red clover uh, with rye. Um, that's a, an ideal feedstock for this. So that it also produces a very high-quality fodder material, actually, which in the event of scenarios like we've had this year where there are fodder prices, this material can actually be re-diverted to supply fodder as well. And now other tillage sources will include sugar beet. We have a fairly large old sugar beet industry there, but it's long gone. But those farmers are still there. There's still the capability of growing sugar beet as well, for instance. Uh, so they would be probably the two main feedstocks in that particular part of the country. If we were up in Mayo, for instance, it would be quite a different story in feedstock mix. But the challenge we've had in Mitchellstown was a realistic challenge. And I think we had to learn from that to see how this would work. And we seem to have a very good complementary mix between tillage farmers, pig farmers, dairy farmers, and between them all actually getting the feedstock together would seem to make sense. So Ian, the injection facility will be down in Mitchellstown and then you're hoping some kind of cooperative model um, will where there will be, how many farmers are, are you hoping for uh, so to feed into that? Yeah, so currently we're working with the Ballyhorough Development, which are based in, in Mitchellstown. So they're a, a community-based development group. Um, uh, at the moment, we have 14 farmers with the group and a lot more interest to join us at the moment. Uh, the intention really is that the Mitchellstown is, is uh, I suppose, the centre point because that will be the grid injection facility. We're looking to a 50-kilometre radius around that. So that kind of 50-kilometre radius covers all the way up to Limerick, we'll say all of East Limerick, all of County Tipperary, all of East Cork. Um, so it's quite a big area. Parts of Waterford even would fit into that catchment area. So within that area, we're looking to develop about 18, 15 to 18 AD facilities over a three-year period, roughly. And um, in simple terms, some of those will be standalone farmers that are actually probably big enough, especially if they have a, a, a significant enough source of, feed of um, slurry. Um, and what we are saying is that the AD facility needs to get all the slurry it needs within a three kilometre radius of it. So you can't really move slurry great distances. The other uh, organic material can travel greater distances. Uh, but in essence, 18 facilities within that cluster area over a three-year period, and um, we think is quite achievable. And we've, as I say, we're 14 at the moment. We don't have too much further to go, but enough, enough interest to get it to the, 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 the 15 to 18 that we need. And Ian, funding was announced last week for the, the Grey's Grass project down yeah. in down in Cork. Um, but in terms of the cost for the farmer, for the setting up of anaerobic yeah. digesters yes. on farm, there's a huge, huge investment involved. Um, how much can these anaerobic digesters cost and how can farmers fund that? Yeah, so what was announced uh, the last couple of days was an investment support for just the infrastructure. So that's us investing close to 29 million on putting in place the central injection facilities and the logistics, gas collection facilities, etc. And separately, actually, we're also supporting uh, CNG vehicles, heavy goods vehicles to convert over as well. But in terms of the farmer developments themselves, every single AD would need a, it's a capital investment of at least five and a half million each, if you appreciate. So you're looking at for 15 to 18 AD facilities, you're looking at a fund of the order of 100 million uh, needed to actually fund all of those projects. Uh, so we've been quite active in terms of engaging with investment houses across Europe and with our own I suppose, Department of Finance as well. So the, the logic we're working to, and we've quite, quite a lot of buy-in really at this stage, and I suppose given the fact that it's such a mature industry in Europe, we've had a great interest from the investment houses across Europe that are very experienced in working with biomethane, in France in particular. So the idea of actually creating an Ireland Inc. fund, uh, call it an investment fund, um, based out of this project, in essence, the AD developers, the farming groups, will be able to come to this fund, receive 100% financing out of the fund, uh, on a non-recourse basis uh, and I suppose there's quite a lot of supports we're generating in there as to how that business model can be pulled together to protect the interests of the farmers, farmer groups or the cooperatives such that they're not at risk but also that the fund is I suppose giving, giving that low interest loan or low interest capital support that is needed which our own, cap, our own Irish banks aren't capable of doing at the moment. How much do you need in that fund? Uh, it's a minimum of 100 million euro um, and to be honest it's a lot easier getting that kind of substantive volume of money out of Europe because you know you don't go to the European Investment Bank, for instance, seeking for 50 million, even 100 million, to be honest, is actually a small change for them. You know, So they're really only interested if you can come to them with a large program of the order of half a billion. And to be honest, 
our uh, our strategy, Gas Networks Ireland strategy, we would see this as the first part of the first phase. Our actual overall target is to get to 20% renewable gas by 2030. So you're looking at a 3 billion investment by 2030 uh, of the order uh, to support a nationwide rollout of AD facilities, not just the, the Mitchellstown project, if you know what I mean. The Mitchellstown project we would see as the first phase in that, but the ambition is to go that large. So would the farmer supplier then have to sign up to some sort of contract for a number of years? Um, and also, can you give me any sort of idea on the return that the that the supplier could get uh, for, for participating in this type of project? Yeah, so the, there will be different business models that will suit different farmer enterprises, if you appreciate. So if you take it first of all, there will be opportunities for, uh, I suppose, feedstock suppliers, for lack of a better way to describe it. So, for instance, tillage farmers would have the opportunity now to grow rotation crops and actually enter into contracts to supply into the AD facility, typically on a, on a fixed price basis, kind of per, per tonne of dry matter, um, kind of high quality material, the higher quality, the higher the rate, but on a fixed rate basis, if you know what I mean. So they would be able to enter into contracts which could be five years, 10 years, even, well, we'd say three to five years probably initially to get, get comfortable with it. Uh, then obviously the AD developers themselves, which could be an individual farmer or a group of farmers coming together, we advise the creation of a special purpose vehicle just to protect the interest of the, the main farming enterprise, so as not to, not to, I suppose, not to, to put any risk on the on the main uh, uh, the main road of the farm, if you know what I mean. So a separate site would have to be set up, kind of two to three acres in size, properly fenced off, a special purpose vehicle, a legal entity created, and that project or that development would be run and operated by the farmer, the farmer or the farmer group. They would be paid a salary to run it. They would have a dividend interest, or they would have, sorry, they would have an equity share in the actual project. So they would earn a dividend if it's running efficiently. Um, and obviously the gas produced will earn a guaranteed return. So it will be a fixed price for the gas being produced and collected by ourselves. Um, and I'm sure I forgot to well, yeah, of course you have the biofertilizer as well, which Initially, we're kind of saying that the biofertilizer being produced, it's a very uh, nutritious fertilizer. Uh, we, we are kind of classifying it as a free material for the moment, because in time, we think that actually, we believe it will actually demonstrate to be better than current chemical fertilizers in terms of absorption rates. Uh, so kind of it will be in the long term, medium term even, this will actually demonstrate that non-organic uh, chemical fertilizers could actually be significantly displaced by this fertilizer being produced. And as I say, it'll be on a free basis that your feedstock supplier would supply to the AD facility on a fixed price base, get free fertilizer back uh, to help improve the land quality, et cetera, et cetera. And in time, we believe the volumes being produced of that biofertilizer probably will yield a, a future commercial return as well. Ian, there is a big push as well at government level for electric vehicles at the moment. Do you think um, a renewable gas, a biogas fueled vehicle is a more realistic option? Uh, no, to be honest, uh, for domestic vehicles, um, just the sheer energy efficiency and typically most domestic vehicles are short range distance uh, usage. Uh, electric vehicles are still probably the better choice for that. Uh, what we're pointing to by methane or renewable gas for transport would be for the heavy goods vehicles. So if you appreciate, and especially in the agri sector, you've got all those dairy, dairy collection trucks, you have huge amount of logistics transport between uh, food processors, the supermarkets, the export industry, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at the scale of the transport sector, about 3% of the vehicles are made up of heavy goods vehicles, but that 3% actually accounts for 20% of the greenhouse gas emissions from transport. So relatively small quantity in the scheme of things. And to be honest, heavy goods vehicles on electric, it just wouldn't make any sense. Whereas actually HGVs are manufactured today at 400, 450 horsepower, the likes of Aveco and Scania. So just as powerful, if not more powerful than the, the uh, current HGVs that are being used by all the dairy collection and all the logistics companies. They're the ideal market for biomethane, and that's a completely zero uh, carbon fuel for these guys. And as I say, it can be produced competitively relative to diesel prices as well, which is another added advantage. Ian, it's a fascinating subject and I have loads more questions, but we're out of time. No Thank you very much for coming in to us. And uh, now this week, uh, Northwest Agribusiness Arrivo launched its website, homeland.ie. Niall Claffey has this report from Sligo. Earlier this week, Arrivo launched its new website, homeland.ie, offering customers the option to shop online. Arrivo's e-commerce manager, Cleo Devaney, outlined why they have chosen this new sales channel. 
So Homeland is a retail store that has, there's 34 locations. Um, they're based across eight counties, mainly in the west and northwest region of Ireland. There's three different types of Homeland stores. So there's a Homeland Plus where you can get clothing and garden and everything the farmer needs as well in terms of an agri range. So the main reason we decided to go with a new uh, online store is because we noticed that customer behaviour is changing, I suppose, to attract the younger demographic. We know that uh, our customer base is online, they're researching products, um, and we wanted to have an offering to our loyal customer base to ensure that they could still shop with us outside of core opening hours, and also to attract a new audience. So we also are now able to have a national reach with our presence in Homeland. Homeland's new online presence aims to make customer research and purchasing as easy as possible, whether it be in store or online. In terms of what we're offering online, it's very much an agri-focused range. We have focused on our catalogue to suit our farming customer, uh, with also hardware and clothing and footwear as well. A wide range of products are available, and customers can avail of several delivery options. We are offering nationwide delivery, so um, if you order before 2pm, we can get your product to you next day at a standard delivery rate. Uh, we also have things like Saturday delivery available because we recognise that our part-time farming customer will need products delivered um, outside of core hours and outside of maybe Monday to Friday. So we've set up a dedicated customer service operation for our online customers. So you're able to ring our offices between 9am and 9pm Monday to Friday and on Saturdays from 9am to 5pm. And the great thing is that we're there, we man the phones, we can answer your queries and there's somebody there to help you with your online orders. The website also features a rewards programme, which has been extended to offer customers the chance to collect and redeem points online. We have a rewards programme that we currently operate at store level and now we're offering the same rewards programme online. So for every euro spent you're able to get one reward point and you can accumulate them up over the year and it gives you uh, benefits back in terms of being able to redeem points against your uh, purchases in store or online. Homeland places a strong emphasis on customer service and existing Homeland customers can use their credit accounts to shop online and view historical transactions. We would always have special offers running in store. We do our two day deals and we're going to be able to offer those to our customers online as well. So any special offers and promotions we run in store will be running online. And at the moment uh, we're running a special offer with Agriland. So we're able to offer our customers 10% uh, off if they go from, our, from Agriland to our online store. We're joined now by Aaron Ford, the CEO of Arrivo. Aaron, thank you very much for coming into us. Earlier this year, Erin, Arrivo reported very strong financial performance for the year 2017, even though it was a volatile year. Um, but 2018 has been an even more volatile year and we've seen lots of different extreme weather events. Um, can you give any sort of projections on how you expect those figures to tally in April 2019? So. Thanks, Claire. 2017 was a good year for Revo. Uh, 2018 will certainly be remembered as a year of volatility, volatility in weather and volatility in commodity prices. That's been true for Revo. Uh, 2018 won't be as strong a year as 2017, but we will continue our track record of, of a strong performance. And that strong performance as a cooperative is measured in two ways paying a good relative milk price to our, to our milk suppliers. And for eight of the last 10 years, we have paid the strongest milk price in the northern half of the country to our milk suppliers in Arrivo. But also having a strong, sustainable cooperative there with a strong balance sheet. So 2018 won't be as good as 17, but it will be a good year for Arrivo. So they're the main strategies in terms of insulating against market volatility. So we, I suppose our first strategy against insulating, uh, for insulating against volatility is to pay a good milk price to our, to our members. Secondly, to have a strong balance sheet in the co-op that they own so that the business that they own and they depend on to process and market their milk is in, is in a position to do that and to invest in its future. Um, outside of that, we do run fixed milk price schemes for, for our milk suppliers and we have three running. We have just uh, launched fixed milk price scheme four. There's various levels of uptake. They're all voluntary. Some of them have worked out very well. Some of them have worked out not so well. Um, fixed milk price schemes really, they need to be of a duration that nobody wins or loses, either the customer or the farmer, that hopefully they break out about even for everybody. 
so that at the end, people can say, look, I got stability in my pricing, whether that's a customer or the farmer. Uh, and that's important to them, depending on where they are in their cash flow cycle and investment cycle. Erin, you have very deep roots um, in the Western region, especially with the with the co-ops, the cooperative model there. Do you still think the cooperative model is sustainable? Um, I work most of my work in life in cooperatives of one form or another, and for the last 15 years in Arevo in the West of Ireland. Um, I think uh, if the cooperative wasn't a feature of the West of Ireland, uh, and rooting back into the, the 40 or so communities that we touch up and down the West and Northwest, I'm not sure who would replace us to, to do the job that the cooperative owned by its farmers would do. Uh, we have a tremendous impact on communities. We bring back um, hundreds of millions annually in, in wages and in milk payments uh, back into those communities. So it is a model that works. Uh, it's a model that, that injects cash into parishes up and down uh, rural Ireland. And uh, I think it's one as it adapts to the future will, will continue to be successful. Where do you see milk price going over the next year to 24 months? So I think this year has been one of volatility, mainly driven by weather events, but not, not exclusively. Also by geopolitical events, um, the, the China-US um, trade dynamics that, that are going on are having somewhat of an impact. Oil prices have risen strongly. That hasn't translated into milk prices as yet. Um, we have to remain hopeful that it will. We're in a difficult phase now. Most of the milk price in Ireland for the last 18 months, two years, has been made up, uh, driven by butter, the high price of butter, at historic um, historic highs. That looks now to be to be plattering and, and coming into a more normalised situation. One would hope, uh, as we transition into 2019, that some of the the dynamics that are there will will tilt back in the supply in the supplier and the farmer's favour and that we'll see more stability in milk pricing for 2019. Another big challenge coming down the track is the environmental measures and environmental regulations, uh, particularly on the dairy side. And in the last few days, EU Commissioner for Agriculture and Development, Phil Hogan, has warned yet again that the dairy sector may, may have to face a quota system based on carbon emissions in the future. What do you make of those sorts of warnings, Aaron? And, and what would you say to your suppliers? So I think we all have a responsibility to mine the planet and mine the environment and leave it at least as good as we found it. Uh, and we take that very seriously in Arevo and I think as an industry here in Ireland. We saw David Attenborough's warning at the, the world leaders meeting in Poland yesterday about you know the end of civilization as we know it. Um, Within that, Ireland has, has carbon emissions uh, targets, which we're currently exceeding. Sort of counter to that, we are still the most carbon efficient place to produce milk and beef on the planet. Uh, and one wonders, you know, how, how the two of those things sit together. The fact that we produce enough dairy and beef to feed nine or 10 times our population, and we are more carbon efficient has that been properly adequately addressed in setting our carbon targets? I'm not so sure that it has. Nonetheless, we have that responsibility to the planet. In Arevo, we take it very seriously. We have resources invested in sustainability, uh, in lean, in a farm profitability program to drive uh, uh, improvement in our operations, uh, to drive out cost and, and to make our operations more energy efficient. So it is something we're taking very, very seriously and, and on a road of continuous improvement in. Do you think expansion is sustainable on the rates at which it's continuing at the moment? I think Ireland has the potential to produce a lot more milk. Uh, as I said at the outset, the fact that we're one of the most carbon efficient or the most carbon efficient producer of milk on the planet um, probably isn't taken account of in, in the greenhouse gas emission targets that we have. Uh, if that milk is to be, production of that milk and beef is to be sacrificed here in Ireland, it will be produced ultimately somewhere that's less carbon efficient. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I think there is potential to grow our milk supply. 
while at the same time trying to improve our, our carbon footprint at the farm level and at the processing entity level. Arivo has a very strong record of consolidating with, uh, with businesses. Earlier this year, uh, you showed some interest in the Lockpatrick merger at the time. Do you think there is further consolidation in the market for Arivo and where do you see that coming in? So this week, Claire, we're launching a book called Fields of Gold. It's 575 pages. It starts back 150 years ago in the era of the Land League uh, and pre-cooperatives. And it charts the history of cooperation in the west and northwest of Ireland uh, in the dairy industry right up to the Arivo of today. And when one leaves through those 575 pages, what's abundantly clear is that process of consolidation has been going on for 150 years. It will absolutely continue uh, where it makes economic sense and where entities joining together can extract more efficiencies uh, and add more value and, and ultimately pass back something more to the member owner, the farmer. Um, we have a very open mind to all of those things in Arivo, always have and have kept a healthy dialogue with, with colleagues in the industry in that respect. And in relation to potential mergers, where do you see opportunities? Look, Ireland is a small place. Uh, there are a smaller number of cooperatives now than there were five or six years ago and certainly than 10 years ago. If we roll the clock on 10 more years, there will be a smaller number again. Um, will Arivo be part of that? It's certainly our aim to be uh, continue the growth we've had. Um, we acquired Donegal's business in 2011. Um, we've had fantastic growth in 2009. We processed 130 million litres of milk. This year we'll process 440 million litres of milk. So it's our ambition to continue that growth, pay a good milk price to the farmers we have. And if somebody either geographically adjacent or product adjacent or whatever is interested in having a conversation with us, we're certainly open to those conversations. Demand also for your products are, is linked to oil prices, particularly in your strong export regions in the likes of Nigeria and Saudi Arabia. With oil prices rising at the moment, how does that impact on, on your prices? So we haven't seen uh, the normal reaction to oil prices of, say, $60, $70 a barrel, where uh, you would see an uplift in dairy prices. That's because of some of the other dynamics at play. Um, one would hope as we journey into 2019, if that oil price rise is sustained, and we hope it will be, um, that, that that will feed through into dairy prices in the markets you spoke about, the Saudi Arabias, the Nigerias. Um, oil exporting countries account for about 30% of, of global um, dairy trade. So we'd certainly be hopeful that uh, a stronger oil price will feed into sustaining dairy prices in 2019. Are there any other markets, Erin, that you're looking at at the moment where you see potential opportunities for Arivo? So today we export currently uh, out of our dairy business in Belladrine to about 50 countries around the globe. Um, we're constantly looking at new ones, uh, but our, our main journey is to stay relevant to the customers we have. So we've built up a suite of customers on those 50 markets. And we work hard through innovation, through lean, through our people at staying relevant to that customer base uh, and, and innovating with them and growing with them together. So that's our main journey. But we, we are always exploring new market opportunities, particularly uh, Africa, the Middle East, etc., etc. We're also just a few days out from this critical vote on the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Um, although Arivo don't have a huge market share in the UK, um, you do supply Northern Ireland. Um, but what is your response to, what, what, how do you think the bre hard Brexit vote could impact on the dairy industry? Look, Brexit, uh, is an unwanted, uh, an unwanted uh, issue for Ireland. Um, every household in the UK will be worse off after Brexit. Every household in Ireland will be worse off after Brexit, no matter what form it comes in. A hard Brexit will just accentuate that. We hope there won't be a hard Brexit. Uh, Ireland Inc. exports 25, 26, 27% of its milk 
to the UK in the form of cheddar cheese and butter. Uh, the tariff on that is an un on cheddar is an unimaginable 1,670 euros a ton, uh, which effectively takes us out of the game. So new markets have to be found for that milk effectively, either in cheddar or in other forms. And, and various people have made announcements about diversification, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think that, you know, that will happen and that will that'll, will proceed over time successfully. We, we've overcome challenges in the industry before and we'll overcome this one. Um, as to what, what will happen in the coming weeks, your guess is as good as mine. It's very difficult to predict at this point. Aaron, earlier this summer, you announced a new 48 million euro investment program in Arivo, and you're looking at, you've outlined different areas where that investment um, will be targeted. One of them, which is uh, homeland.ie, which actually launched this week. Can you tell me a little bit about homeland.ie and why you've decided to venture into the online market? So Homeland is the brand for our agribusiness uh, business unit. Um, it has a, a feed mill producing 150 odd thousand tonnes of feed, Balladrine and Roscommon, and 34 retail physical retail stores up and down the west and northwest of Ireland. Homeland.ie is our 35th store effectively, with a good strong team that have been 18 months building uh, towards yesterday when it launched. Um, we're very excited about it. I've never ceased to be amazed by the people, the profile, age, etc., of people who are shopping online. Uh, so from our point of view as an agribusiness and supplier into farming, we have absolutely got to be online and have the best agri-retail site in Ireland. And we believe we're there. Um, and hopefully it will do very, very well for us. Because consumer trends, as you say, are changing and, and that can't be ignored. So there's a younger demographic in farming. Uh, but even people of uh, an age one mightn't expect to be online shopping are online shopping. But that younger demographic are doing a lot of business on the phone day in, day out when they have five minutes or half an hour quiet on the farm during the day. They're checking stuff, uh, checking out stuff on various sites and then they'll order in the evening. So we absolutely have to be online. We have a very strong physical presence. We certainly won't be shrinking back from that. 34 stores up and down the West and Northwest. Uh, but we have farmers and board members who are saying to us, where's our online store? And we absolutely have to be online. And so what types of products will be available on it? So our focus is agri products. Um, agri in the main, we want to be the, the best agri retailer. We're not competing with Amazon selling power tools. Um, but we want to be the best at agri. So all your agri needs can be can be bought through homeland.ie. Great. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for coming in to us. And of course, Homeland is the sponsor of Farmland. And uh, we wish you all the best with that new venture. Do you think the star rating of Rams is a good job? Yeah, it's more work. More work. The big problem with the five sheep farming now is too much, too much recording and it's like getting more like complicated all the time. Like most farmers are able to judge a sheep by looking at them. Like. I'd be into hill farming now, like, and it might could be July for the first time you have your hand on the lamb. Like, sure. how could you be recording lambs? Like, you know, as close to nature as possible. Like, less work as less work with them as possible. And are you a member of the Sheep Ireland? Group? No, no, no. Anything with paperwork, I stay away from. <laughs> Do you think uh, the star rating is a good idea? For oh sheep? yeah, sure. Anything that improves the quality, yes, of course it is. Yeah. Do you I think, I suppose, then, that the data recording is a good idea in the sheep? Yeah, probably is. There's a lot of trouble, though, no? yeah. tagging and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think of the sheep star rating system? I'm not too sure of it now. I don't be into it much, so I don't know much about it. So. Um, do you think it makes a bit of a difference? But I never seen. You want a good yew too? You know, you're not going to. You're not going to have a good. You're not going to have a good lamb. You having good yews. That's the. That's what I see about the whole star rating. You know, if you're having a bit of breeding, you have nothing. Like, do you think there'll be any benefit on recording that on yos and rams? Like? I think it'll be a good benefit, all right. And do you think the star rating of rams is a good idea? I think it is, yeah. It's the same as the cattle now. They're all rated in, you know, that you know what you, it can be announced and you know what you're buying, what type of ram you're buying, especially if you're going to keep pedigrees. More than likely a gimmick, the same as the tagging and everything else. Farmers know what they're at. And a lot of the guys in the office don't know what they're at. 
Are you in Sheep, Ireland? Are you familiar with that? Or? No, no, I won't be familiar with that really now at all. The star ratings, do you think it'll be a good idea for Sheep? Or? I don't understand anything about it at all really. Are you a member of Sheep, Ireland? I used not really know. Mm. No. Would you pay any attention to their stars or anything? Not really, no. But sure, the star ratings and the cows, sure, it has a kind of a, it has a kind of a, I don't know, a mess made of cows. A good cow, a good cow has no stars and... Huh? I have 15, see, 15 or 16 cows, and the worst cow I have is, has five stars. I know, Frisian-y type cow. So I have cows with one star, good Shirley cows and good limousine cows that's breeding the finest of cattle. Would you judge your ram on the star ratings or on what you see? I judge the ram by this look. That's the way I judge them. And the judge of both the very same. We're joined now by John Brooks, the sheep chairman of the Irish Cattle Sheep Farmers Association. John, our report from Dowra Mart there raises more questions than answers about Sheep Ireland. Can you just outline why Sheep Ireland was set up about 10 years ago? Yeah, clear. Um, Sheep Ireland took over from um, the LMI system, the department LMI uh, system that was there before that. And I suppose Sheep Ireland was set up to record, accurately record information as to speed up genetic gain uh, in a number of different traits. And um, they've been doing that now since 2009. And you're right, there are more questions maybe than answers as regards, you know, maybe some of the information or some of the, 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 the star ratings and the fluctuations is a, is a big concern. Um, ICSA would have huge concerns over, over fluctuation and star ratings. Um, you know, as you know, sheep farming is a, a high uh, labour, low income uh, industry and farmers buy uh, indices and they expect them to be, um, you know, reliable and uh, not to fluctuate. And I'd say if some of the farmers who buy uh, sheep-based analysis went back and checked them after a year or maybe six months, they'd be very disappointed as regards how they've gone. I think our ICSA believe that, you know, the system of collecting uh, unverified data from breeders, you know, may contribute to this. Um, the system that Sheep Ireland have in place, they collect uh, data from breeders maybe on a number of different uh, indices. Uh, they collect them, for instance, on date of births, uh, on type of rearing, on uh, multiple feathers, um, single twin or quad, they collect um, uh, weights. Uh, they collect weights at different intervals: twenty day, forty day, forty day, eighty day, hundred twenty day, you know, and so on. But and how is that data collected, John? The breeder inputs that data into the system. The, the orders is on the breeder to collect that data, and this is where maybe it falls down. That data, in the main, is unverified by Sheep Ireland, and it's a financial reward or it's a financial incentive. You know to manipulate that data uh, because uh, there is a war reward there you know uh, clear that if you can you know manipulate so that you'll get a higher star rating or a higher indices rating uh, it is a financial reward involved um now ICSA has challenged uh sheep Arlo that on a number of occasions and the systems they put in place to check this you know are very very weak um for example uh sheep Ireland will say how they visit you know, so many farms, uh, so many uh, sheep breeders uh, when lambs are five months of age to back fat scan and to weigh and to uh, muscle uh, scan and muscle depth scan. But at that stage, at five months of age, at five months of age, like, you know, that is not going to verify any of the previous information. You, you cannot tell how the lamb was reared, when he was born, what age the lamb, you know, any of the, the, the weights was given in up along, up along to that end of it. That can't be verified at five months of age. The other... Uh, so how often should it be checked? Well, if you go back to the, to the original system that was there, the LMI system that the department ran, and in fairness, it was a very robust. Uh, for example, you submitted the number of sheep you had um, you, that you had entered in, into the for to be recorded. They came out and checked prior to lambing. They checked at lambing. The, the, the weight recorded. They checked your weights. They checked it against the data you put in. When it came to scanning, all lambs were scanned on your farm. You know, currently with Sheep Ireland, you have an option of putting in 50% of your lambs and there's also an option there that, you know, you can say that some of them have been slaughtered or culled before this. But with the sheep, with the old system, every lamb on your farm on over 25 kilos was, was scanned. So there was verified, the system was there verified all that them results. Um, and when you talk, John, about, you know, a financial incentive that could be there to manipulate uh, the figures, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, Claire, you know, if you can manipulate the figures 
uh, so that you get higher indices ratings. You know, there's a natural tendency there, you know, even you or I, Claire, if we were recording and if there was a, a financial reward that your sheep was worth more at the end of the day, you know, you, human nature would be to, you know, maybe skew the figures for your own benefit, you know. Um, sheep Ireland have also introduced what they call a DQI, a data quality index. Indices. And all that is in reality, Claire, is that if you input your data on time, and you keep your inventory, you know, correct on your on your page, um, uh, you're rewarded for that. But that has absolutely nothing to do with verifying the accuracy of the data that you've inputted up until then. But surely, John, the more breeders that participate, the more accurate the data is at the other end. Claire, not necessarily so. There, there, there are two uh, arguments to skew that argument. There are two sides to skew that argument. Number one, um, when you do that survey or make that claim, uh, there's actually a financial reward to manipulate the data. And the other part of it is that in general, there's what's known as outliers. And the more numbers you have, the more accurate the information we get because it'll pick up the outliers, it'll cancel the outlier effect. But in this case, Claire, who or what is the outlier? Is the outlier the person who's telling, telling the giving the accurate information or is the outlier that's giving the false or the inaccurate information? I wouldn't like to have to guess, Claire. And John, what are some of the long-term and short-term implications of this data not maybe going through as accurately as it should? Well, in the short term, you know, it, it is costly on the individual sheep farmer who invests money, you know, on, on something that's not going to perform. And in the long term, it could prove very costly to the industry as a whole. You know, you imagine in any system or any data system, you know, you like to build it on a foundation, a solid foundation. Well, if you build a system on a foundation of sand, you know, after a number of years, it can come crush, crushing down and can prove very costly, prove very costly to for all the money that has been spent. You know, uh, sheep farmers pay a levy every time they slaughter a sheep to support Sheep Ireland. There's taxpayers' money involved as well. And look at the bottom line is, no matter what system you're in, no matter what, when you're in research, you have a duty to make sure that the data that you input is correct. And the genetic side of it is very important. Um, on the cattle side, we're seeing that improvements are being made in the genetic merit of the herd. How important is it that accurate that data is accurate coming out of this type of system? Well, it's, it's very important because you know, in the normal set of circumstances, when so it's, you know with breeders or in, in, in since farming began, there is genetic progress being made all the time. But if there's accurate recording done, that can speed up the genetic progress. If you know you use science, and in fairness to Sheep Ireland, like they are using science, we'll say you know uh, genetic and, and 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 DNA and that sort of stuff. You know that can speed up as well, speed up the ge uh, genetic merit and speed up uh, uh, um, um, results. But um, I still go back to the point, Claire, that you know that if you if you have a weak foundation, if your accuracy isn't you know robust and accurate, you know you you have the danger of it collapsing. So, John, is the Sheep Ireland scheme uh, more beneficial on the pedigree side or on the commercial side? Well, it should work for both. You know, uh, if indices and accuracies are, 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 are correct, uh, it should work. It should benefit both because, you know, the pedigree reader as well, he, the pedigree reader wants to make advances as well and wants to use whatever tool is there to make advances. So the pedigree reader needs accurate information as well, no more than the, 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 the commercial farmer. They need accurate information. And maybe another factor there is currently clear is that the indices at the moment are given in uh, accuracy figures in sheep, whereas they're given in reliability for cattle. And if you compare both, we'll say, for instance, um, in the sheep section, uh, you know, most of the rams, even in, in, in a breed such as the Belclare, which is all the sheep are recorded from, from day one, the Belclare breed, their indices, we'll say, at the sales would be, would on average lie between 30 and 40% accuracy. But if you convert to that to reliability, you'll be talking about an accuracy of 30% would come in for reliability about 9%, an accuracy of 40% would come in at 16%. And you know, them kind of figures aren't acceptable. You know, what, what dairy farmer or what beef farmer would buy a bull or buy semen from a bull with, with reliability figures that low? So there is a huge onus here on, on Sheep Ireland to step up to the plate and put a system in place that will produce accurate reliable figures. So ultimately, John, what is the ICSA calling for in order for change to come to the current system? 
Well, look, basically we're calling for accurate information, reliable, accurate information. That the, the, the star ratings are that won't be fluctuating. I think also we have a problem with, this, with the actual system of star rating. You know, we would prefer an individual trait rating so that, you know, the farmer who's buying the ram can decide, I want this indices, I want, I want these, I want certain, I have a basket of categories or, that I want, you know. And I can give you a few examples there, you know. For instance, a sheep that will live and thrive in Wicklow, you know, might live in Donegal, but definitely may not, wouldn't live and thrive in, on the west coast of Ireland. You know, there are sheep breeds specific to environmental areas in Ireland, it's only a small country. There are sheep breeds who, who, who will be known to, to breed for terminal sires. For example, the Beltex. If a farmer is buying a Beltex ram, he's not buying the Beltex ram with the intention of breeding uh, females. He's buying them with the intention of breeding a carcass. You may have a sheep farmer in the south of Ireland who is in early lamb production. They you know, there's all different criteria. So I think the system, I think the system where, where somebody uh, compiles the figure and gives certain weightings to everything and puts the figure all together, as is in the sheep stars, it's, it's making little of the end user. The end user can discern themselves what they want. So it would be far better to have a system that gave individual indices, positive and negatives, that the, when the person is buying the, 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 the sheep, they can decide, well, right, I want a high fat cover or I want high muscle or whatever it is, or I want prolific sheep. Uh, you know, that they can buy whatever suits their, their system or their environment. John, we're out of time. Thank you very much for coming into us. And thank you very much to all our guests and to our sponsors, Homeland. If you want to get in touch with the Farmland or Agriland teams, you can email or call us directly or reach out to us on our social media channels. Thank you for watching and we'll see you next week.